You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Nick Chater, who is professor at the Behavioral Science Group at Work Business School, and also the author of this book right here, The Mind is Flat, The Remarkable Shallowness of the Improvising Brain. Nick, this book was, on the one hand, very disheartening because it it highlights the lack of depth and, and how, I think, as you said, that common sense psychology is a hoax. I mean, it's an extreme language, but I, I really loved it. And so in that sense, it was a little bit disheartening. But then, of course, towards the end, you start making some really amazing kind of speculations. One of which I found fascinating was this idea that psychologists could probably learn a lot from literature and the arts and maybe a little bit less from, from the sciences going forward. But let's start with this really profound claim that you make that there is no inner world of thought from which our thoughts issue. Now, this would kind of say that the entire psychology industry and, you know, amateur and professional, which is all about teasing out our inner identities, our inner selves, our unconscious, the the deep foundations of who we are, that this is sort of a a waste of our time. I wouldn't put it quite as far as to say it's a waste of our time. So would you come back to that? Because I think there's something extremely valuable going on when one's thinking, who am I? What am I really about? What are my goals? What are my objectives? I think that's a really valuable and important thing. And I think having other people help you with that in therapy or in conversation, that's you know, one of the most important things that we do. What I think is not going on is that we're not probing through those processes, either of introspection or through talking to other people. We're not probing our minds to say, what's in there really? What is in my brain? You know, it's not that you're able to somehow hunt about in your inner life and find sort of fleeting scraps which tell you what you're really, really like. I think that's a really fundamental mistake. And there's just a different kind of metaphor, I think, we should have in our thinking about this. And that's the idea of continual improvisation. So when we're conversing, the process by which I generate my next stream of of words, and you do too, is something that we have no real understanding of. I mean, we we can't explain why these words coming to mind, why not those other words. They just burble out. And remarkably, most of the time, we make reasonable sense. But we don't make perfect sense, of course. We don't make perfect sense because we are improvising. So if you imagine, if we were really viewing sort of, as it were, a true inner landscape, you know, I have a stable set of beliefs, I have a stable set of values, a stable set of plans, and all of this is, is pretty fixed, then at least ideally, when you ask me questions, any questions, I should be able to say, well, let me look that up in my inner database and I'll just tell you the answer. And if you ask me a similar question, related question, or the same question again, it should all fit together. It'd be a bit like you know, having a perfect map. If you ask me, you know, where's one city in relation to another city? And where's this, there's that other city again? And you know, how does that relate to the coast? You can ask me any questions and all the answers will fit together if I've got a perfect map. But of course, we don't have that kind of equivalent of the map. When you're asking me about what I think about this issue or that issue or what my plans are for next year and what my plans are for next week and all of these things, I will give you a set of answers, but I'm making them up at the moment you're asking me them. And because I'm doing that, they will tend to be inconsistent with each other. So it's like, I'm more like a fiction writer. This goes back to, your, to the connection you mentioned earlier with the arts. It's more like I'm a creative fiction writer thinking, well, you asked me a question there and I've got to give a sensible answer. Well, let me try this one. And I'm trying to be consistent with the thing this character, me, has said before. I don't want to just wander off in some completely random tangent. Now, of course I don't because I, you've got to hold me to account when I say something and I say, oh, I'm planning to do this and I don't do it. And you say, well, you said you'd do it and I didn't. And I know I'm not completely unconstrained, but I'm improvising my answers. Now, you might ask yourself, well, 
why do we see it that way? Why should we see ourselves as these sort of continual, generating this continual stream of improvisation? And of course, that's really what the book, at least the first half of the book, is about, is providing that story. But I think the sort of essence, the essential point really, is this, is this lack of consistency. The fact that if you ask me different questions in different ways on different days or even different moments, I'll just give you different answers. So a lovely example, which comes from the work of, there are many, but let me pick, pick one up from the work of Eldar Shafir, who's a Princeton psychologist, or a very good one. He has this lovely phenomenon that he discovered in the 90s, where you ask people, you give, you give people two options. And mm-hmm. one is a really middle-of-the-road option. It doesn't matter what the option is, what it's about. It could be custody decisions, one of the things he does. It could be monetary gambles. It could be holiday choices. It doesn't make any difference. But anyway, you've got this one option, and it's got all the features it has are all very middling. And then you have another option, which has some really good features and some bad features. So the example I like to give with with holidays is you've got some fairly dull holiday, which is pretty cheap, and it's not a very exciting resort, but it's kind of nearby, and it's kind of easy. And there's this really glamorous holiday in an exciting place, but it's so expensive you can barely afford it. So that's one example, right? You've got this kind of extreme option, extreme good stuff, extreme bad stuff, and you've got this sort of of middle-of-the-road option. So the first thought you'd have is, well, of course, if you give me any two options, I should have a preference. Maybe they're exactly equal, but probably I have a preference one way or the other. But it turns out, and this is the, the miracle of the Shafir trick, if you ask the question in a different way, you'll get me to give you a different answer, or at least on balance across numbers of subjects. So, and crucially, so the first version, you say, here's a middling holiday, and here's a holiday which has got many exciting features, but some real downsides. Maybe you hate long-haul flights. Maybe long-haul flights are bad for the environment, which they surely are. So there's some bad stuff, but there's some good stuff. So, so which would you prefer? Which you, you've got to choose one. And on balance... So let's say, and this is you know, true in the, when the experiments are carefully designed and carried out, that most people on the whole choose the um, exciting holiday, but with the downsides, it's extreme option. Now, the other condition, the other variation, the other half of the participants get is a case where you say, you've got these two holidays, but you can only choose one. You've got to reject one. So which one are you going to reject? And this is the shocking thing that they also reject. The majority of people reject the very same holiday. So they say, well, the extreme one, no, I better reject that. How could that be? If you had an underlying preference, surely if you ask me essentially the same question the other way around, I'm just going to give you the consistent answer, but I don't. And the really interesting thing is, is Eldar's explanation, which I think is incredibly deep, really. The explanation is, look, you've asked me to justify and come up with a reason to choose one of two holidays. So I'm thinking in a positive mood, a positive frame. I'm thinking I've got to have a reason to do choose something, so I must think of a good feature of that thing. Ah, I know, this exciting holiday in a glamorous location, it's got loads of good features. So if you're asking me to choose something, that's what I'll do. And in fact, if you then want me to justify my decision, I'll say, well, look, you know, those wonderful culture and beaches and whatever it is. So I can tell you all this stuff about why it's a really good choice. And also, importantly, I can tell myself that too. On the other hand, if you say, which of these holidays would you like to reject? Now my little mind rushes off thinking, I've got to improvise a reason to reject something. Mm. Well, luckily... That long-haul flight slash way-too-expensive holiday, I mean, I can reject that. I mean, I can't afford that. That's totally insane. Well, I hate long-haul flights. So I can reject it really easily. So the thing is, that is the improvisational mind in action. I'm facing a question. I've got to cook up an answer. One of those options has really obvious downsides and upsides. If you ask me what to choose, I focus on the upside and I choose it. If you ask me what not to choose, I focus on the downsides, and luckily it's got lots of those, so I choose it again. And that makes perfect sense from a improvisational point of view, but it doesn't really make sense if I had a kind of, as it were, a scales in my head weighing up all the things I liked with, with numbers or something. The Shafir story that you tell is a little bit different than 
most of the stories that you tell, because most of the stories that you tell, what happens is, you know, there's perception or action. And then afterwards you have to impose some interpretation, right? But here's an example where you're told the interpretation that you need, and then you take the action to try and be consistent with the interpretation. You know, part of our, our folk wisdom or our folk psychology is that we are consistent. And so we look for consistencies among the inconsistencies in our past, but then we also try to take actions, you know, because we have in front of us some interpretation that we're trying to, to live up to. Is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, I think that the desire for consistency is very real. The illusion is thinking, I must be consistent because it, uh, there's this inner mm -hmm. world. And like the real world is consistent, isn't it? I mean, you can wonder, you know, is, is London north of New York or South Island? I'm not too sure. But it's one or the other, right? And it's consistent. It's not that London is north of New York, but London is also south of New York. That's not possible. Because the world is consistent. The external world is consistent. And the illusion we have is, well, the inner world, it's a world after all, it must be consistent too. It's not. So then the intuition we have is that any inconsistencies I come up with must be some kind of reading error. I'm looking in my mind, I'm making a few mistakes. And that, of course, that's the way psychologists have normally seen it. Because when you give people any task at all. It can be about mental images, it can be about the kind of thing we just talked about, about choices, it can be about beliefs, just anything. A stream of inconsistent stuff emerges, and we all kind of know we're doing it. We think, oh, I said that, but now, hang on, I've just said this, this is a bit weird. So the normal story is, well, of course, the inner world is it's a world, so it must be consistent, and I just can't see it very clearly. It's kind of a murky thing. And I want to say, no, that's completely the wrong perspective. It's much more like a story. So it's like if you're writing a story and somebody says, oh, what happens next? The answer is, well, I haven't figured that out yet. I'm still writing it. And you might say, oh, but the thing you told me now doesn't seem to fit with what you said before. And if that happens, I think as a writer, I think, oh, no, you're right. I'd better change that. Or I didn't spot that, that inconsistency. So I'm trying all the time to be consistent. Mm -hmm. But because I'm making up this story, I'm going to fail. I haven't got, haven't got some sort of inner map or inner kind of database to consult. Well, when you start the book, you talk about a fictional character, right? So you talk about Anna Karenina and, and you talk about how as you go through the process of reading the novel, you're trying to back out, right? You're trying to infer some common personality or some identity, you know, you're crafting this character in your mind. And, and so you're trying to reverse engineer that character from the discrete factoids that you learn about the person. And you, you say that, well, it doesn't matter whether this was a journalist or a novelist, you'd have to be doing the sort of same sort of exercise. And when you're thinking about yourself, presumably, you know, you have to do the same exercise. You just are less, a little bit less conscious of it. I know when people ask me, they say, well, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do that yesterday? And so my response oftentimes is, well, I have a theory, right? And people are like, why? What do you mean you have a theory, right? Well, I mean, I, I don't know, but I have a theory, but isn't that kind of theorizing necessary for us to make predictions, right? We try to theorize about other people so that we can kind of craft some expectations about what they're going to do or, or what, what's going to happen going forward. I think that's right. So I'm, wouldn't, I'm not saying that our intuitive understanding of each other should be abandoned. We just just to see it for what it is. And what it is, is a, a rough and ready way of trying to predict a sort of intelligent machine, very, very complex intelligent machine, whose workings of which we know nothing. You said it's like a refrigerator, right? You say understanding the mind is like understanding a refrigerator. You know, we don't really understand how it works, but we can kind of know that what it does and predict it. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Things like refrigeration are things that we all kind of feel. We sure must have learned it at school, and we must kind of understand it. Unless, of course, you happen to be trained in these things. If you spend any time thinking, well, how on earth is it that, that you can get something that's cold to be even colder? And how weird is that? And what's going on? I mean, essentially, none of us have a clue. And there's lots of lovely experiments and studies in psychology where you try to get people to explain their intuitive yeah. understanding of electricity or refrigerators or air conditioners or whatever it is. 
and people usually start, as we all do, fairly confidently, but things sort of crash and burn very rapidly because we don't really understand. And I think our own minds are just like that. So you kind of think, well, minds, I mean, I am a mind. I mean, surely I must know how this works. But as soon as you start to contemplate what's going on, it kind of becomes increasingly baffling. And I think the key point really is that we don't have any special knowledge of ourselves. Um, so if I'm watching a, a movie or reading a book, I have a sort of sense of, well, this person's done these things before, and that ran through their mind according to the author. So maybe this is what they're going to think next. So how are they going to react in this situation? I've got some ideas, but I, I don't really know for sure. And of course, that will be true if it's a real person I'm watching in a, in a real encounter. But it's also true of myself. I have some guidelines, I have some expectations about how, how I'm going to behave and how I'm going to feel, but I don't really know. And going back to the, the point that we're improvisers, it's kind of impossible to know because I'm inventing it now. So I, you know, I hadn't made it up before. And so to know what I was going to do would be to sort of do all the thinking of one's entire life and sort of do it up front. I mean, the thing is, as an improviser, the brain's job moment by moment is to do this incredible job of creating explanations and understanding. It hasn't got it prepackaged. Right. So I think the, the core of your story is about this narrow channel of consciousness, which is sort of built on this narrow channel of perception, right? And the idea is that, you know, you can only sort of see one thing at a time or think about one thing at a time. And so this story of optical flow, maybe you could walk through it a bit and kind of how we create this illusion, because I think what really brought it home to me was when you mapped it on over into the world of memory, right? And you ask someone to kind of imagine something or remember something and the process by which we remember it is very similar right you know where we have to kind of move our imaginary eye around to the various parts of the object and and try to figure out what's going on yes yes so i think the first part of the story is this really remarkable fact that the channel from which we see the world and indeed same for other senses is incredibly far far narrower than we think we sort of half know this because we're all taught very early on in biology lessons, that the cells in the eye are very concentrated in the center. So in the center of the retina, there's a big clump in the vivea, where the density of the cells allows us to perceive fine detail. And also, that's where almost all the color vision is. So essentially, all, all the cone cells, there are two types of cells, of course, the cone cells for color and the rod cells for black and white. I mean, that's crude, but it's roughly the story. And the cone cells are pretty much all in the fovea and a little bit surrounding the fovea. They kind of taper off to about 10 degrees of visual angle, but their color vision is good within about one degree of visual angle and gets weaker beyond that. Just looking at the anatomy of the eye, you'd think, ah, well, one thing we can be sure of is that there'll be no color vision in the periphery. You know, like, like I look around the room, I think, well, of course, everything's pretty black and white at the edges, and there's a lovely pure color in the middle, right where I'm looking. And similarly for detail. So I should have a real sense there's a detailed, precise world and right where I'm looking, but everything else is very woolly. That's not how we think it is. I mean, intuitively, we think, well, that's wrong, isn't it? I mean, everything's in sharp focus and everything's colorful. I think, how can this be? What's going on? One possibility, of course, would be that somehow the anatomy is misleading us. But clever experiments of many different kinds show that that's not the case. In fact, the anatomy is not misleading us. In fact, we probably have an even narrower bottleneck than we think. So a lovely, probably the most convincing example, I think, or the one, perhaps the example that staggered me the most when I heard it, extraordinary, is the phenomenon that Keith Rayner and colleagues discovered at, at the University of Massachusetts the early, very early 70s. So they got people to read texts with what's called a gaze-contingent eye tracking. This is a method where you track the position of somebody's eye and you can change what's on the computer screen in front of them depending on what's where their eye's moving. And this is pretty impressive stuff in the early 70s. So the trick is that they decided to make sure that you could have proper letters where you were looking but everywhere else, you have 15 characters, actually, five backwards of where you're looking, five to the left, the 10 to the right. Everywhere else was just X's. So you're reading a sentence, 
And if someone just looked at that sentence and could move their eyes around freely, as it were, looking over your shoulder, they think, well, that's a lot of X's. There's just a few letters there. But the letters are where you're looking. As you read the sentence, your eye moves in these little discrete hops, saccades. And as it hops, letters appear. And then you hop again and letters appear. And the weird thing is that when you are in these conditions, when you're in an experiment, you just think you're reading normally. So if, if someone said, well, what are all those X's doing? You'd say, well, what X's? I don't see any X's. I'm just reading a normal sentence. If you, and if you ask the person, can you see lots of words on the screen? Oh, yeah, I can see lots of words. It's just like, what's the problem? Well, the problem is it's almost all X's. The only letters, which aren't X's, or Latin or anything you like, the only letters that are actually meaningful are the ones right where your eye is. Now, that's a really, really strange phenomenon. So what it's telling you, I think, is that the intuition that we have that the world is, is a rich, solid place that we're perceiving as loaded into our mind is a mistake. I mean, the world is rich and solid and colorful and so on, but we haven't loaded it into our mind. It's not, in, as it were, in our mind's eye. But what is the case is that we have the correct sense that any time I want to answer a question about how the world is, I can answer it. So, so essentially, the trick is that if I think to myself, is the world you know, fully detailed and colorful? Well, I'll check. And I'll check by thinking, well, what's that word over there? And as soon as I think, check, my eye flicks over and looks at it, gives me the answer. Oh, okay, I, you know, I could see that one, couldn't I? And then you say, oh, what's the color of that book on your shelf? And I think, oh, it's orange. Now I can answer that because I'm looking mm -hmm. at it, right? As soon as you ask me to look at it, I look at it and I can tell you the answer. But it's so quick, right? It's so fluent, so fast that I have the feeling, well, I kind of knew that, didn't I? I mean, it was in my head already. I'd, I'd loaded it into my brain. So, so that sense of being in sort of rich perceptual contact with the entire environment I don't think it's really an illusion. It's just that what it's telling us is that we can answer whatever question we want to answer. Ask me a question about color of anything, I can answer it. But I don't have that loaded in my brain at any point. So when people read faster, let's say, it's not that their perceptual window is bigger. It's just that they're able to move faster and process the information better. But what about, you know, we talk about people developing a better kind of sense of peripheral vision. Are they people that are scanning the environment more aggressively, or are they people who sort of have a better capacity to remember or infer what they're not actually focused on? Yeah, that's a good question. So to pick on the reading point quickly, so roughly speaking, when you're reading, you're, you're not quite reading one word at a time, but you're pretty close. Mm -hmm. So short words you jump over, really long ones you might do two hops. Of course, sometimes you go backwards. It's not far from one word at a time as an approximation. Now, people who are quick readers, they do move faster, but they also jump more. So they're just better at inferring, well, I saw the beginning of that word. I guess the rest of it must have been this, and probably there'll be an in and a the afterwards. And so the gaps, you know, a lot of the stuff is predictable, right? If you covered up some of the text, you could figure out, well, given the words to each side, that gap must be filled in like this. And people who are good readers are good at doing that kind of filling in. And people who are well, the supposed phenomenon of speed reading, where you're supposedly be able to read a page in like a couple of seconds or something, I mean, that just turns out to be totally bogus and just doesn't work at all. I remember trying this as a teenager, and I had a go at you know, trying to read Tolstoy or something at tremendous speed. And I sort of tried this for about 30 minutes, and I thought, this is really good. I, I know there's something, something about balls is happening, and, and there's some, some sort of battle. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> well, yes. In retrospect, I think, well, of course, if you just take a random word salad out yeah. of whatever it was, War and Peace, then, yep, you're going to know that. Of course, you've got no real clue what's going on. So to some extent, reading quickly is, we can fool ourselves when we're reading quickly. The information's all piling in. But on this question of peripheral vision, I think the thing that you have, aside from this narrow window in the visual system, you do have this very large set of detectors, these rod cells, which are mostly interested in change. Mm -hmm. So what they really care about is, is something surprising happening. 
And the reason they're there is because they, they're telling the favea where to look. As if you've got this kind of super-powered searchlight, and you can look anywhere with it, but you can only look at one thing at a time. And you need something in the system to say, something going on here, you should look. So it's things like sudden movements, change contrasts. Those are the things that will pull the, the spotlight into the right place. So I'm sure people vary a lot in how sensitive they are, how quick they are, how good they are at using that. But we're all using that system all the time, of course. But that's a sort of separate thing. But that system doesn't know what anything is. It doesn't say, oh, ignore that fast-moving object because that was just a, a fly. But look at this one because it's a, an enemy plane or something. You know, it doesn't have any of that sophistication. But surely you learn over time kind of what constitutes novelty and, and what doesn't, what sort of things you can ignore. I mean, you think about really high professional-level athletes and how they're able to know what they're supposed to notice and what they're not supposed to notice, right? Isn't this sort of about accumulating a set of patterns, right? So you mentioned the chess players, right? And they can yes. size up a chessboard in a few seconds, right? They're clearly not going through piece by piece by piece by piece, right? And similarly, when you, when you talk about those you actually use these images where you had like the head of a dog and, and you rotate it. And that means that the definition of a thing, if you can only look at one thing at a time, the definition of a thing can expand or a word can become a pattern of words or something like that, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So of course, when you first learn to read as a child, a letter is a thing. In fact, it may not even be a thing, but it's a challenge yeah. to turn a, a squiggle rather than just being some key, some strokes to turn it into a, a G or an I or whatever. And of course, as we get to be fluent readers, Words are roughly things. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so with a chess player, yes, highly experienced chess players do start to see at least parts of the board as, as things. Probably not the entire board, but large chunks of it. This is, I've seen this formation a million times, and this is basically what's going on. Here's another old favorite over this part of the board. Um, and this phenomenon people like Herbert Simon discuss a lot in the 60s and 70s and 80s. This idea of chunking, so you're creating, and George Miller, going back to George Miller, the founders of cognitive psychology, this idea that you, as you become more skilled at something, you start to re-represent the world. So rather than representing it as a lot of little pieces, you start to create these new, bigger pieces. So yeah, that's critical. And I think people who are extremely experienced musicians or sports people, or indeed linguists, they are creating these new representations all the time. And of course, when you're learning a foreign language, it's like that too. I mean, it starts off as just a blur of sound, and then gradually you sort of hear little fragments you understand, and gradually you hear a bit more. I've never got that far, but this process of creating sort of ever larger units. So yes, you're absolutely right. I think there is a pretty solid principle. It's not, some psychologists would argue that it's not, it might be a bit too restrictive, but I'm going to hold to it for now anyway and say that there's a pretty good principle that you can only perceive one thing at a time. But as you say, what counts as a thing is flexible. And as you learn, as you become more expert, that is a malleable notion. The thing becomes richer and bigger. So like many other people who teach judgment, decision-making and so forth, I use the Kahneman framework, right? Where you have the system one, system two. And one of the key distinctions in that literature is that system one, you can do parallel processing and, and system two, it's kind of serial processing, but you're kind of saying, well, even when it appears to be parallel processing, there's quite a bit of serial processing going on. It's just sort of happening very, very quickly. Is that the idea? Yes, I think that's right. The parallel serial distinction is a very subtle one, isn't it? So for example, if you're thinking about perceiving an object, so you look at a looks, look at some company or something, in a sense, you've got to search your memory in parallel mm -hmm. because you don't know, is this a dog? Is it a car? Is it a, a painting? It could be so many things. And you've got to search all the things this object could be. And you've got to search them really fast. And of course, in a complex moving scene, 
things are only going to be present for a short period and you may have to interact with it. So you, you need to be fast. So you don't want to be slowly thinking, well, let me just check it. Is it this? Is it this? As it were, you were kind of going through a templates one by one. So there, the ability to search memory in parallel is truly staggering, actually. I mean, the fact that we're able to see an object and recognize it within a two or 300 milliseconds, possibly less for very familiar objects, it's like an amazing thing. So we're doing really rich parallel search. I mean, another example would be faces. I mean, you see somebody that you know, you know who they are within two or 300 milliseconds. And that obviously is another parallel search. You can't be searching your database of friends and acquaintances one by one. But on the other hand, you can only do that parallel search once. If I show you two faces, you can't say, oh, I've recognized them both at once. You can recognize one face and then think, then you have to think, let me now check the other one. You can't do two. And I think this is, this is not unconnected because when you're doing this parallel search, you're taking up a lot of resources and you're just looking everywhere. You're basically sending out a broadcast signal to the brain saying, have you seen this? And if you do that twice it's at the same time, you're just going to get horrible interference. I mean, it just appears to be the case that the brain just can't really do that. So the process is in one sense parallel because you're searching this huge database and you're searching, you're not searching, searching them entry by entry, you're searching them all at once, but it's serial in the sense you can't search for more than one thing. I did an experiment. This was by a couple of colleagues at Warwick, Greg Jones and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Mailer, probably I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago now. We did a very, very simple experiment to look at this where we asked people to generate as many of whatever category we, we like, but say as many cities, UK cities or US cities or could be types of animal, or whatever you like. It generated as many as you can, and you just write them down. And we just look at how quickly they write them down. So the simple version is you, you just have one category, and off you go. And then you do another category, then you do another category. And then the slightly more complex version is you say, well, if you like, you can give us either an animal or a US city. I mean, it doesn't matter, whichever. So the dream would be that if you could search both of these at once, then, of course, you'd, you'd do a few US cities, and then you think, oh, I'm kind of, if you're American, it'll be easy. You'll be going for a long time. But I might be struggling after a, you know, a couple of minutes of this. I'll be thinking, oh, it's, it's getting harder and harder. But luckily, I can put in some animals. If I could search mm -hmm. the animals and the cities at the same time, then I should be doing much better at this task mm -hmm. than if I had to do just cities and animals. Because I can run them both in parallel. And when, when one search fails, the other one's still going. But you don't see that at all. So people completely switch. They do cities, animals, cities, animals. And how quick they are is exactly predicted by essentially how long they're thinking about one task or the other task. There's no parallelism at all. So it's really interesting that even something as simple as just thinking, you know, let me think of animals, that blocks out all other memory searches. You, can, you can't search your memory twice in two ways at once. But you make the point also that if you stop doing a task and then revisit it later, you can see bursts in creativity or better results, but that's not because you know your brain is working on it in the interim. It's because you're just taking a fresh approach. And this happens all the time with crossword puzzles, right? Work on a crossword puzzle, hit a dead end. And then, you know, sometimes even if, if I have someone read the question out loud to me, instead of me reading it over and over again, it may trigger something. But this is a very different phenomenon, right? This is sort of getting out of that dead end trap of cyclical thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is a long term, long standing debate in psychology of problem solving. And, you know, my sort of view is with the more deflationary, less exciting story, which I think is the right story which is exactly as you say, that you get stuck in dead ends and you need help to get out of them. And your, your example is very interesting, actually. So just asking the question in a different way, presenting the information in a different way, that may be enough to get the brain not just to go back to where you were before and just tell you that again. It does something, something new. But getting stuck in a rut, that is our sort of bane of our lives. In general, if you get people to do a, a set of problems and they get stuck on some of them, and then you ask them again to start again tomorrow, 
there's no sign that they've they've been doing secret processing. They don't turn up and say, oh, well, you know, now I look at these, I can just rattle them off because I sold all these last night when I was asleep or you know, I was working on these for hours. I and mean, that's just not the case. But they always say you should sleep on a big decision, right? Yeah. I think there is validity because of the, the rut, getting stuck in ruts point. I think this is really valid advice because I think coming back to a problem, you may see it from a different point of view. So one thing I'm very, very keen on is the the fact that we don't really, we're not really aware of how stuck we get. So we see a problem, and this is the kind of reason that insight problems are such fun, is that you have a, some problem and you think, oh, it's just impossible. I couldn't possibly, have, it doesn't make any sense. What could the solution be? And then someone says, ah, yeah, but look at it like this. And you think, oh, God, yeah, of course, I, see, I get it. So suddenly you see the answer. But of course, until you've seen it the other way, you, it's not that you saw it the other way and thought that's a silly way. You just haven't seen it that way at all. So it's like the classic duck rabbit, which I'm very fond of, that you see this thing which looks like a duck, but it kind of looks like a rabbit. But you, you don't think that's a rabbit looking like a duck or a duck looking like a rabbit. You think that's a duck. And then you think, oh, but maybe it's a rabbit. Or is this also a rabbit? Oh, it's a duck. It's a rabbit. But you only see one of those interpretations at a time. And unless you knew there were two interpretations, you probably never even noticed the other one, actually. And I think that's true for us in, in daily life. So if you look at a problem in a particular way and you think, well, the obvious thing to do is this. I see, I know what this kind of problem is. It's just like that problem I had before. And that's what I'm going to do. Then the possibility that you're misunderstanding the problem, and in fact, there's some other way of thinking about it, and you haven't thought that through, is not really going to occur to you. You, you see it as a duck and you behave in a duck-like way. On the other hand, if you woke up tomorrow and looked at the problem again, you might think, hang on, that looks like a rabbit because you're not in that rut now. And that might be really valuable. Yeah, I want to get back to that interpretation part. But before we move on from the, this idea of serial versus parallel, I remember I took an art history class and it was about Picasso. And Picasso was painting around the time that Saussure was, was writing. And, and the instructor said that, you know, a lot of people believed that language was something that had to be experienced serially, whereas the visual experience could be done in parallel. And then his, his point was that Picasso exploded that a bit by illustrating how when we take in visual information, we do so also in kind of a sequential way and kind of made this explicit in his painting. But I was wondering if you could comment on the memory task, which I, I really enjoyed that memory task where you asked someone to imagine a tiger or imagine a kind of a cube and, and rotate that cube in space. And I was like, oh, this is going to be easy, but it's actually, you know, quite hard. Yeah, I think these are very interesting. Probably the easiest one to, to talk about is the, the tiger. So you, you just ask yourself, but it's a very simple thing, which is, goes back to a nice discussion by Zenon Polition in the 70s, which is like, how many stripes on a tiger's tail? And you kind of think, well, I imagine a tiger, I'm imagining it now. And as soon as you start to count them, you think, well, I, yeah, I can't really see them. And I keep sort of moving around. This is all very odd. And so that's, that's weird in itself, because going back to our improvisation point, if you can improvise, you can't improvise a picture of a, a detailed picture of a tiger. It's just too hard. You can't perceive a, if you can perceive a whole tiger, but if you're perceiving the whole tiger, you're not perceiving all its sort of components, as it were. So if you're conceiving the whole tiger, you're not conceiving it, you're not um, perceiving its tail as an entity, and you're not perceiving its toenails as an entity, and so on. So you have to pick your level. But that point about perception, of course, applies to images too. So if I'm thinking of the whole tiger, I'm having a sense of the general shape of the thing, and maybe how it moves. But if you say, but I'm not focusing on any individual part of it. As soon as I focus on the individual part, then I have to create that part in more detail. So before I focus on the tiger's tail, I, it hasn't got a number of stripes because I haven't actually created it. If you force me to create it, I probably won't even create the stripes either. I'll just create some generic stripey thing. If you get me to count them, then my brain's got to think, oh God, I've got to create some actual stripes. But it's hard to do, but also they're not there already. I have the sense of a vivid image, but the vivid image is vivid because as I want to zoom in on a bit of it or 
query a bit of it, I can create that, but I'm creating it in the moment. It's not, it's not already there. And it, our images aren't really as vivid as we think. So that's the tiger kind of illustrates that. But another thing that's nice about tigers is that if you ask yourself, well, the front of the tiger, I mean, how do the, how do the stripes, how do they go around the, the legs? So you kind of imagine the stripes going up the legs. I don't quite know how they get up the legs. And then they get to the body. And so the stripes, how do the body and the legs attach? And how do the stripes kind of flow from one to the next? And what about the front of the tiger? How does that look? It's all just a total mystery, the more you think about it. And of course, in fact, it turns out that tigers don't have stripes on their front at all, which most of us, if you know a lot about tigers, you'd know this, but most of us have no idea. And you look at a tiger and think, oh yeah, right, of course, that looks, looks like a tiger should look. But you can't see any of this in your mind's eye because your mind's eye is just a much woollier thing than you think, but also it's, it gives you the sense of vividness, which is to a large extent an illusion. But I think the most important point is that the whole idea of the mind's eye is a tremendous sort of it is a hoax, really. It gives us the sense that instead of looking out at tigers meandering across the jungle floor, I can also look at tigers in my mental landscape. There they are, sort of wandering around in my world. But that's completely wrong. If that were true, they would have definitive numbers of stripes on their tails. But they don't. I can only envisage a one object at a time, one piece of an object at a time. And I'm very bad at doing that. This is also a nice analogy for thinking about our own beliefs and our preferences and our plans and our principles. And so with the tiger, we think, well, I've got this inner tiger in my head. I must just describe it. But then we discover, well, actually, maybe I didn't have a, maybe I didn't have an inner tiger in my head. And I think the same story is if you say, you know, what are your sort of underlying moral principles? I mean, it's not that I'm an unprincipled person. It's not like there's a list of them. And I just, if only I could do enough analysis on myself or some deep philosophical thinking, I'd find what they were. I'm improvising my sort of moral perspective or my plans for my future or my beliefs about the world. I'm improvising them just like I'm improvising the tiger. But in the same way, I have this sense that it's pretty solid. I can kind of see the whole thing, but I can't really. It's as incoherent and shadowy as the tiger. And as soon as you probe me more, you realize, God, sort of everything collapses. Presumably, if you're, say, a painter and you've been in painting tigers for a while, then your ability to, to recall the features is crisper, but you're still going to have to do so in a, in a sequential way. Is that, is that the idea? Absolutely. Yes. If you spend a lot of time painting tigers and you'll obviously totally know how the stripes lie across the legs and which parts of the tiger don't have stripes at all, because you've really attended to that, but you're still going to have to reconstruct the tiger in your mind's eye in a sequential way. So yes, Picasso himself, who was obviously the master of these things, he was still working in a sequential way like the rest of our brains do. So I think the general story with people who have extraordinary skills is that they're like the rest of us. They've got the same type of brain. They've just been using it in a very special way for a very long time. So would that apply also to the inattentional blindness, right? So we talk a lot about multitasking and, and the limits on multitasking, but you know, a lot of people think that they can kind of train themselves, right? So I, I use the video in my class with the basketballs and the gorilla and so forth, right? Like everyone else. And kind of the point that I'm making, and I don't know if this is a correct point, is that there's a trade-off and that the people who see the gorilla in general are going to miscount the basketballs and, and vice versa. You have to pick your poison and figure out kind of which you're going to be better at. But is there is there a way to kind of push that frontier out so that you can be better at both? You mentioned that there are people that can do sight reading and, and transcription at the same time. I'm always fascinated by simultaneous translation people. I'm like, how do they do that? Like, I don't understand it. And you mentioned that it has a lot to do with the connectedness, the cooperative, the coordinated consciousness. Yes. So I mean, the inattentional blindness, I think, is something that is so deep-seated that we can't really fix it. So you're exactly right. 
if you're going to count those basketballs, you're going to miss what else is going on. So you simply can't follow the ball as it goes from person to person accurately without missing everything else. Of course, if you know there's something suspicious going on, then you can probably jump off the basketballs now and again and just try and sort of look around. But essentially, you're going to always be harming your basketball following performance. It sounds like you're using that, and I really like it, and I haven't thought about it this way. It's a really interesting metaphor, more broadly, that if you're trying to pay close attention to a particular process or a particular way things are done. And that may in some context be really important. But if you're doing that, you're going to miss stuff. And if you're trying not to miss other stuff that might might be unexpected, then you're going to miss some of the meticulous stuff. There's just an inevitable trade-off. You can't do both perfectly. And that's fine. What's miraculous about a human mind is it's so unbelievably good at coping with a complex world, even with these limitations. So you were mentioning about the, you know, these different networks. And if things are being done by completely different, non-overlapping networks, then you can engage in simultaneous focus, so to speak. Absolutely. So this is very interesting. So I think the broad story about any particular network in the brain is it can only do one thing at a time. And not everyone would agree with this, but this is not a bad first stab anyway. So in these experiments where they give people overlapping images, so you have two images, or maybe one's a word and one's an image, they're right on top of each other, and one's, say, blue and one's green or something. Then in principle, you should be able to recognize the retina has got all the information to recognize both, and you're looking at both as well. But you can't do it. You know, your brain signal will say, I read that word, haven't got a clue what the picture is. Or I, read, I saw the picture, I haven't got a clue what the word is. So basically, your brain is showing an impulse which is implying, I saw that signal, but I didn't see the other one at all. You can't really do both. Or at least, to the extent you're doing both, you're not really doing either very well. So it goes exactly back to your point. Well, it's like rubbing your head and patting your belly, right, in a way. Yes, yeah. But, of course, exactly as you say, some tasks just don't necessarily require overlapping networks at all. Now, the thing here, so this would be things like, boring examples would be clearly the bits of the brain that, that control breathing and heart rate and so on are not particularly densely connected to, compared to the, the ones that are doing, say, mental arithmetic. So if you're doing a bit of hard thinking or mental arithmetic or thinking of some other kind, your physiology just keeps on running and the brain has separate systems for those. But it is also true if you're thinking really hard, you might find yourself stopping everything else you're doing. So if you're walking, you find people will, if they're really struggling to, to remember something, so they might stop and it will actually help. Them. It's like walking and chewing gum, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the thing that's really interesting, I think, is that firstly, that for anything which requires, we think of as requiring concentration. So something like playing the piano or speaking, these things tend to require control for fairly central processes. So sort of the frontal lobe part of the brain which is helping you decide you know, what to do when to stop doing that thing when to move from one part of the task to the next so basically sort of controlling the process but flow of control where you're doing a task those complicated processes tend to require a lot of that and because that is a single network a single big complicated network if you're doing one touch task you can't do another one so if you're playing something tricky on a piano which you can't really do very well and someone says you know do some mental arithmetic you just can't do it however if you're doing a task which you're very very familiar with so your pin is playing a piece you've played a million times, that process no longer does need very much frontal control. So essentially, you've, you've automated that. That's now can be done by networks which are just not engaging, not requiring all that frontal control. So you now can do other things. So for, and you can get touch typists who will be able to read, well, reading a, a text and typing it. And at the same time, they can actually do this extraordinary thing called shadowing, which is where I play a tape of somebody speaking into 
your ears through headphones and you just say those words. So you've got this extraordinary thing that the person is doing two totally separate language tasks. One language task is here's a bunch of letters, type them. And here's and the other task is here's some words in your ear, speak them. And those two tasks can run simultaneously. Now, for, mo- for most of us, that would be impossible. You know, just totally garbled. We'd be completely flummoxed and go produce garbled nonsense. But if you're a really good touch typist, then you can do it. There's got to be quite a good shadower too. It's because you've essentially automated those two processes. They've got separate networks which don't require, well, basically you don't want both of them to require the same process. But that's a rare case, actually. The normal story with anything that we require, we think of as requiring concentrated effort. Almost anything that we do which requires concentration will do in any other thing that requires concentration. Can't concentrate on two things at once. In some sense, that's sort of what the concept of concentration is. is something that's a limited resource. We can only really do one thing at a time. Is that because one of those tasks has become sort of automatic, kind of like breathing? Like, so if somebody's having a conversation while they're playing tennis, let's say, I mean, is this because they are just really good at tennis or really good at conversation? Or is it because the parts of the brain, the systems required for tennis are in some way different from the parts of the brain required for conversation? I suspect not many people can really play tennis and converse without a bit of interleaving. So they'll they'll be speaking when they're not doing the tricky part of making a shot or they're making an easy shot. But yes, I mean, they're clearly going to be aspects of the perceptual motor control aspects of, of tennis playing, and which I don't necessarily need to engage with the same processes regarding conversation. But anything that requires this general kind of concentration and planning. So if I'm not a very good tennis player, then I've got to think really hard about the whole thing. How am I holding a racket and how do I swing the thing? And that's hopeless, right? I can't do that and have a conversation because I've got to as it were, do this sort of central control stuff. But as soon as that's very, very fluid and very automatic, I'm sure professional tennis players can can do a lot of stuff while playing tennis, but it will still affect their tennis for the worse. So I'm sure if you had Novak Djokovic trying to do mental arithmetic while he's playing tennis, he'll do pretty good, but he will certainly be worse at tennis. He'll still be beating the rest of us, but he would be worse at tennis than he would normally be. Yeah. I wonder if part of that is an endogenous in the sense that, well, I mean, obviously when you get good at something, that's endogenous, but this idea of non-overlapping neural circuitry because you know when people talk about creativity they always say well yeah creativity is is often a result at least this is a hypothesis of lots of more connections across different kind of neural systems than you would get in a normal person i suppose and so presumably if you need to have some separation to kind of multitask does multitasking necessarily impair you know being good at multitasking does this necessarily impair creativity you talk about kind of metaphor and the importance of metaphor yeah i'm a great believer in the fact that we're we're all being incredibly creative all the time of course i think we're amazing improvisational machines and we just don't really recognize the astonishing creativity required just to interpret the world around us to interpret other people to interpret ourselves there's this continual stream of invention issuing from every human being really is from sort of birth till death it's just yeah we are staggering inventors so I do think creativity is really central to what it is to be human. Of course, some people are, in a very overt way, even more creative than the rest of us, but we are all pretty creative. I'm not sure that there's a necessarily a trade-off between multitasking and creativity. I think, first of all, multitasking is largely, it's rare. What we're talking really about are these sort of special cases, such as people who are super skilled at things, where there does seem to be some degree of automatization, where they can run one process without any central control. Although, having said that, even there, there seems to be some residual effects of the central control. So a very lovely experiment by Hal Pashler and colleagues. Hal Pashler's at UCSD 
all kinds of wonderful experiments on attention, which influenced me a lot. But one particularly nice and simple experiment is an experiment where you, you're, you're in a very simple driving simulator. I mean, sit you on a computer, I think. And you're driving behind, you imagine you're driving behind a car you can see on the screen. And from time to time, the car will stop abruptly and your brake light will come on. And you've got to slow down. So you've got to press your own brake pedal to slow down. And at the same time, you've got to report something that happens on the screen. So it might be that the, a light comes on or something like this on the, it's not a brake light, some other light comes on or something, something else happens. In one condition, you actually have to say something like up or down or high or low or whatever it is. So it's just, it's a verbal task. You're picking up a visual signal. At the same time as that, you, you have to potentially break. The really nice thing is that even though the task, that the, the spoken task, just saying up or down or high or low, very, very simple task, completely trivial, this interferes with your ability to break even if you're a really experienced driver. So you might think, look, I can drive on autopilot. I mean, I don't, doesn't require any attention at all. I've been driving these you know, 20, 30 years, whatever. So it's completely automatic. I can chat, I can do anything. But even doing this simple task of saying whatever it is, up or down, high or low, that is slowed if you have to brake. So essentially your brain is saying, I've got to do some braking now. Central processes are saying, focus on this, and then up, freed again, and now we can do this other task. You have to do one, cue it, get it done, and then, then move to the other. So that's true even with, with, with a lot of experience. You don't seem to lose that. So I think there is remarkable limits, actually, to how even super, super experienced drivers or sports people, how serial their minds are. They're still somewhat affected by these sort of basic limitations. Yeah, the example of the airline pilots who, who crashed one-third of the time, that was pretty scary. Yeah, that's right. So this is a rather alarming study where you're in a flight simulator and a, a, an aircraft looms. This is in dark conditions. Clearly, in the simulator, you've got lots of other instruments to look at, all of which were on a heads-up display, so they're all on the screen. So even though the pilot isn't obviously looking, they are clearly looking at the scene in front of them as it's unfolding, a plane can loom into view really very obviously if you're looking at it, but they don't see it because they're focusing on some other part of the image. They're reading a dial or the, yeah. So, so just having something in view does not make you see it. You talk a lot about what I think of as kind of the William James story, right? Which is about how we interpret our emotions and how we construct our emotional life. And, and this is, you know, really an act of interpretation and and when you dig into it and you realize that it's so easily altered by, by context, right? You mentioned context as a way of understanding, you know, is this a rabbit or is this a duck? But you could also ask, am I angry or am I excited or am I romantically inclined? And it's really an act of interpretation in many cases, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So there are lots of lovely studies where by changing the context, you can get people to interpret the same emotional experience in a different way. So one particularly famous one is Dutton and Aaron's amazing study on the with high and low bridges, I think somewhere very near the University of British Columbia campus, not on the campus. So the trick there is they get attractive female experimenters to intercept, I think, male bridge crossers. I think maybe both genders, but anyway, male bridge crossers. Then they'd get the male bridge crossers after having walked across the bridge. It's either a high, scary bridge. It's really quite a large chasm they're going across or a low, not very scary bridge. The, the male bridge crossers are asked to do some boring task and then told at the end, oh, for ethical reasons, I, you know, I can give you the option to take my phone number and you can call me if there are any issues this has raised, which is pretty unlikely, I think, judging by the study. And the question, what they're really interested in is how many people take the phone number and how people, many people phone it. And the answer is quite a lot, but it's quite a lot higher, something like 40 or 60% higher if you've just walked across a high bridge. So you're a male bridge because you just walked across a high bridge. What's going on? Why are you suddenly phoning more? Well, the Dutton and Aaron's hypothesis and why they run the study was, well, you've just walked across a high bridge, you're full of adrenaline. You then meet someone and it's quite likely you'll think, wow, there's some kind of connection here. 
what's with this adrenaline? It must be this person who's talking to me. Now, of course it's not. If you, were, if you thought for a second, you'd think, hang on, I've just walked across a high bridge. That's why I'm full of adrenaline. But that's, you know, you're in flow of conversation. You're not thinking about that. So you're interpreting this kind of heightened physiological response as something to do with the person, not with your experience. Or another example, which was done by Danny Oppenheim and now at Carnegie Mellon, is a very simple experiment where you give people either beautifully photocopied or very poorly photocopied pictures of luxury cars. So say you have a Jaguar and a BMW, and in one case, the Jaguar is really badly photocopied, and in the other case, the BMW is, and you ask them how much they like the, like the car. And you're interested in how much they like the car, not the picture. Now, not surprisingly, they're quite strongly influenced by the crumminess of the picture, so it makes mm-hmm. them not like the car so much. But the really cool thing is that Danny also says, in one condition at least, he says, yeah, but I had this terrible problem with my photocopier. I'm so sorry about this. Some of these pictures are terrible. And then the effect, I think, really reduces a lot. It doesn't perhaps completely disappear. So when, when people realize, oh, yeah, that's a really cool car, but of course the photocopy is terrible, they can deal with that. They can take that into account. But if you don't tell them about a photocopy, they just think, ah, oh, I didn't, yeah, that just doesn't look that good, that car. And they don't think, yes, but the reason it doesn't look that good is obviously terribly photocopied. So it's the same problem. Your brain is not being visually, as it were, tickled because of, by this, this image and because of the photocopying so bad. So therefore, you don't really like the car so much. The same trick. So this is exactly what you were saying. It's this continual process of improvisation when we're thinking, do I like this? Do I like this person? Do I like this car? Am I amused by this person? Am I irritated by them? I'm not too sure. And you can trick people in these sorts of ways into making essentially the wrong judgment. And that reveals what they're doing all the time. We're always playing this improvisational game. Well, you mentioned mindfulness, and I don't think you specifically mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy, but you know, both of these are rooted in this idea that if you become more aware of the interpretations that you're kind of applying to the raw materials of experience, then this can potentially allow you to either, I mean, sometimes we'll, some will say, well, have a more accurate interpretation or perhaps a more useful interpretation or an interpretation that's healthier. But I think some people might be very upset once they become aware of how much is, in fact, retroactive or concurrent interpretation. Yeah. I think that both those concepts, mindfulness and CBT, I think they are very aligned, actually, and with this perspective. So, I mean, there's not a, not a clash there. And I, I think one thing that's so important, I think, is certainly for dealing with, for example, recurrent negative thoughts, something like that, is being able to think, oh, there's that interpretation again. I have that quite often. That interpretation that says, I'm a very bad person, or I terribly failed at everything. Well, there it goes. You know, that's just one way of seeing the world, and I won't, I'll be seeing it differently in a minute, and I'll just push that aside. Whereas if you, don't, if you don't think like that, it's easy to think, oh, that's me. That's the world. I'm just looking inside myself and I'm looking inside and saying, oh, no, a terrible person. But no, that's not right at all. And we all have interpretations fluttering about which come and go. And one moment we look like a duck and another we look like a rabbit. And so freeing oneself up from thinking, I'm seeing the ground truth here, is I think often very helpful. Because sometimes we really aren't seeing the ground truth and it's terribly dangerous for us to think that we are. Well, the flip side of that is if you discover, you know, the love of your life is, is an interpretation, right? And, you know, you want to believe that this is something fundamental. Yeah. I've thought a lot about this, as anyone would, of course, if you're thinking, trying to make this story convincing. And I think the story with love, I think, really is interesting because I think the way to think about this is the thing that makes it real is its sort of dyadic quality. So I think it really is, infatuations, I think, are things that are actually genuinely kind of ephemeral things. Or rather, it's possible to know quite what, what do you make of an infatuation. It's like, well, you felt some stuff, 
were you, did you even know the person properly? Were you projecting? Is that some sort of deep, lifelong thing you should hang on to and sort of hold out for forever? Or is it, you just don't know. But it seems natural to think, well, that was just, it's the very one-sidedness of it, which makes it seem somehow kind of ill-defined. And I think the thing about love is that it's the fact that it's recognized by so two people. So you're both in love with each other. That is a sort of an objective fact, right? I mean, so I've got this interpretation of my wife and she's got this interpretation of me. And I mean, obviously, who knows exactly how stable that is, but we've got this kind of joint understanding of the way things are. So it's like co-authoring a novel together, right? Exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. And it is a novel. Yeah, we've made this novel up, but it's our novel. This is how we say it goes. And of course, sometimes, you know, we have, you know, inevitably you have different perspectives on things. But if you have that sort of common, it's part of your common story. So I think it's a very real thing, but it's not inside one person's head. And therefore, I think one of the things that's dangerous about the sense that it is, actually, is that we can find ourselves thinking, do I really love X like I should, or do I love this relative? Or and if you ask that question and start to look inside yourself, you're kind of doomed to fail, I think, because right. that's not the way you know, these relationships work. And the same would be true of friendships, too. It's this kind of mutuality. It's a jointly authored thing. I think that's absolutely right. And that's very, very nicely put. Yeah. So in that sense, when you say that people are always striving to be in character, but love is sort of opening up the authorship of that character somewhat that you're trying to be inside of, right? Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I suppose on a, on a lesser scale, other kinds of friendships and even just conversations uh, to some extent where we're doing a thing together and that's a thing that's not quite what we'd have done either of us. And that's kind of expanding our world a little and of course deep relationships do that, that a lot yeah and also i think education right so when people come to school right part of the reason why they come to school is because they want to rewrite their character right and if you're a good teacher you can kind of like help move that process along and, and then they imagine themselves to be something that they never imagined themselves to be right yeah exactly yeah that process of seeing yourself as a in a way a fictional character of your own creation is quite liberating it's not that you're a, a kind of vaporous trace with, with no solidity it's more that you have some control over what character you can become and it's not limitless I think an example I give in the book, I certainly always giving to people in conversation is trying to become Charlie Parker if you're an amateur saxophone player. But I think, well, I'll, I'll just try to think myself into the past and see if I can just play like Charlie Parker. And the answer is, no, you can't. There's only one Charlie Parker. Now, what you can do is you can pick up individual phrases and painstakingly put them together and you'll sound a little bit more like Charlie Parker and Charlie Parker himself would probably laugh at your efforts, but still you can incrementally change, but it's a process of very, very sort of effortful, slow, habitual, laying down new traces. You're learning to play in a way you didn't play before. You can't magic it. And that's similarly true with, with characters. So I can't suddenly radically change, say, I'm just going to play the role of you know, somebody completely different from me. I just can't, I haven't got the skills to do that. Of course, people who are remarkable actors, they are rather, really, rather magical. That's a very, very, very unusual and remarkable thing that some people really do seem to be able to, to inhabit other personas. But of course, often they would also say that's something that's very, very laborious. They spend you know, days and days and days in character and there's building up this repertoire of movements and facial expressions and sort of intonations which are specific to that person and they can, to some extent, approximate being another person. But I suppose the general point is we are, we're able to reinvent ourselves and recreate ourselves, and we're sort of doing it anyway. And we can't magically just go from A to B where B is anywhere, but we can say, I really want to be a bit more like that, and we can edge that direction. Now, I can't play like Charlie Parker, but if I could play the saxophone at all, I could play a little bit more like Charlie Parker than I did before. Now, you talk a bit about artificial intelligence, and two points you make. One is that the move from good old-fashioned AI to kind of machine learning was really driven by 
changes in how we view the human brain and human psychology. But he also makes the point that, you know, for those of us that are concerned about the emergence of general artificial intelligence, we're not going to get that anytime soon, that there are certain aspects of the human intelligence that, that are very difficult to replicate. Yes, I'm very relaxed on the singularity problem. So a good sort of indication of, of why it's nothing to worry about at the moment is that the big successes in machine learning work by using gigantic amounts of data and gigantic neural networks and computational instantiations of things a little bit like in the way the, way the brain is structured. And this is an incredible technological achievement. So you build this incredible software network, you can throw enormous amounts of data at it, you train it, unbelievable amounts of computing power and it can do stunning things i mean it, some of these algorithms can generate text they can recognize pictures and so on so that's really really astounding but the way they're doing it is really different from the way we're working and the way they're doing it is by generalizing a very little from a very very large number of examples whereas the human brain is also able to generalize a lot from a very few examples for example a thing that's very natural for human infants is to be able to see that a teddy bear and a bear are kind of the same thing. And for that matter, a picture of a teddy bear in a book. And these are objectively really, really different. And if you show a kid a picture in a picture book, you know, here's a picture of a donkey, and then you see a real donkey, they might struggle a bit. And I think, well, yeah, is that the same thing? But they, they can make that kind of leap relatively easily. But the at the level of the actual information flowing in through the retina, these are completely different things. And similarly, we can learn words from incredibly, or learn, learn meanings from incredibly few examples. You just have to show me one example of a... For a child, you might show one example of a of a donkey, and you you won't know exactly what the boundaries of donkey are. You might think horses are included and so on, but you've got a pretty good go, and a few more, and you've got it. So we're phenomenal generalizers from very tiny numbers of examples, and that's something that is really, really, really difficult for machines to do. So that means that when AI systems are dealing with very familiar problems, where there's enormous numbers of similar problems have been dealt with in the past, they are very, very good. But if they're dealing with problems which are much more open-ended, where new things are cropping up all the time, then they're going to go into and indeed do struggle. I think the human, we have nothing nothing to fear. What AI will do is it will change the way we live in a way that advances in technology always have. So my analogy here is, is horses. If once upon a time we got about by horse and the motor vehicles came along and the horses were redundant. But the motor vehicle did not replace all the functions of the horse. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that it couldn't breed, it couldn't freely reproduce, it couldn't jump over fences, uh, it couldn't digest grass, and all the things that horses, the amazingly complicated things that horses do, could do any of them. But what it really could do is one thing, and it could do it, a very important thing, and it changed the world. And I think AI is like that. It's, it's going to take things that used to require lots of human brain power to do, and will do them better than we can. But it's not doing it by being a person any more than the motor vehicle is sort of replacing the full complexity of a horse. And you summarize the book by saying the self, the idea of the self is nonsense and the idea of self-consciousness is nonsense on stilts. And in a way, what you're doing is you're kind of hearkening back to a, a psychology that precedes Freud, right? And you're really going back to Hume and, and others. And it really does push you more towards this, this literary interpretation of, of the self. And so even though I think of you know, what you're doing here is a rejection of Freud and everything that came after. I mean, in many ways, Freud was, was a literary figure. You mentioned Joyce and Wolf, and I think Freud is right in there as a storyteller, helping us to try and make sense of our lives with stories, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, I mean, Freud is unquestionably an extraordinary thinker, an incredibly brilliant writer. Thinking of his, his contribution as a contribution to enlarging art of 
intuitive understanding of, of ourselves in the same way that literature does. I think that's right. So my family have been reading Jane Austen in the last uh, few weeks, and you have this sort of same sense of, obviously, there's no theory in Jane Austen, but there is this kind of incredible, clever insight into human motivation and puzzlement and, rea- and how people react to each other in tricky situations. And you have that sense of, oh, wow, yeah, I sort of see that a bit more clearly. I've got to understand a little more clearly how, how people deal with situations like this. I mean, I think that's in the same territory as Freud. It's really hard to do that. It's very hard to write anything that makes you see human experience around you in a, in a way that is different and somehow you feel is clearer and more insightful. And I think Freud's real contribution is is a remarkable one, but it's a literary contribution, like other great literary figures. Now, I think he didn't see it like that. He was trying to paint a picture of the primal forces within the mind and how they interact to produce the behavior we see and so on. I, I think that story has not really stood up in scientific psychology for you know, many, many decades, but I don't think Freudian contribution is, is to be negated. I think it's really, really important. It's shaped the view of ourselves shape the way we intuitively think about human behavior in a very, very interesting way, but not always a helpful one. Now, you can always tell when a psychology department building was built based on where it's located on a university campus. And I remember, you know, when I was at Penn and, and now at Berkeley, the psychology department's buildings were built in the 50s and 60s, and so they're always right next to the education department. And then when I was at Virginia, they had a, it was built in the 90s, and so it's right next to the biology department. And so I'm, I'm thinking maybe our next psychology buildings will be built next to the English departments. Well, I would be delighted if that were, were true. In fact, it's very interesting. The connections with psychology and neuroscience are, are very, very deep and interesting. But I think the connections with psychology and the arts in general are super important. And in a way, yeah, I mean, my starting point, I suppose, is thinking we are you have these amazing creative machines. And not just in literary context. I mean, I think that is, is astonishing. But even with the visual arts, we tend to think of visual creativity being about the creation of extraordinary visual forms, which it certainly can be. But just the ability, as, as Leonardo used to talk about, the ability to create an image from a wall of lichen or some other random structure, to be able to see that as a crowd of people or a... Paradolia with the faces. Yeah, yeah. That is astonishingly creative stuff. And I think we'll understand, we'll respect ourselves more, actually, as we see ourselves as these kind of astonishing creative one- wizards, rather than thinking of ourselves as rather plodding scientists. The human brain is, is quite a poor scientist, but it's a really astonishing creative engine. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining me. The book, again, is The Mind is Flat, which will actually help you appreciate the depth of, uh, of the human mind. Paradoxically, I appreciate you joining me today, Nick. Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much, Greg. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.